As you're seated this morning, let me encourage you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to the Gospel according to John. This is our third week into this series, and we arrive today at John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. Last Sunday, we heard the testimony of John the Baptist as he was interrogated by a group of priests and Levites who put him on the stand unannounced. And in that encounter with the interrogators, John the Baptist did what he was put on the earth to do, which was to point away from himself and instead point to Jesus. And now another day in the life of John the Baptist, and he's up to it again, pointing to Jesus. So on this particular day, as we look at our text we can see that John the Baptist looks up and he sees Jesus coming to him. And seeing Jesus, John the Baptist proclaims to everyone around us and to us this morning, not only who Jesus is, that's one thing, but more importantly, John the Baptist proclaims what Jesus is. Let me get right to the point here, right at the beginning, that through these six verses, through John's proclamation of the who and the what about Jesus, the Bible teaches two core realities about Jesus. And these two realities matter because they not only give clear definition to Jesus's life, but they also give clear definition to your life. Because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus is, your life now and your life forever is inextricably linked to Jesus. Jesus has unique status above us and Jesus lays a unique claim on us. And it's the clear teaching of scripture that permits him to do this. This past week on Wednesday morning, right out here in our front yard, I refilmed a little one minute video that we've put together that sort of explains in a one minute what we're all about as a church. The original version, which we still have up online, was filmed in the winter. So the campus is all gray and bare. I'm wearing a thick winter coat, and you can tell I'm freezing cold (laughs) as I talk. I was born and raised in Florida after all. So kindly, they refilmed it this week, so I'm not so, uh, my teeth aren't chattering as much. And here's what I said. A little 60-second blurb about why we're here as a church. Somebody say action. action. Thank you. Ready? The Bible teaches us in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
This is really good news, that Jesus holds all things together. Your life, your family, your job, your kids are all held together by Jesus and through Jesus. And this is why we exist as a church. Truro Anglican Church, right here in Fairfax, Virginia, on busy Main Street. We exist to celebrate and proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus holds all things together. We invite you to join us as we build our lives upon him together. Somebody say cut. Thank you. Now, what I just said and what we've put up on YouTube for the whole world to see is the fundamental reason why we're here as a church is absolutely outrageous to claim that one person in history out of all the humans who have ever lived, that one man is central to everything And somehow, that one man didn't just create all things and all rulers and all authorities so that they would just exist on their own, but so that they would exist for him. And that everything, everything we can see and everything we can't see is held together by him. What an outrageous claim. But what an outrageous truth. And it's a truth the Bible teaches. It's a truth we can build our lives upon. And we can grab hold of this truth in the person of Jesus. And John the Baptist proclaims the person of Jesus to us by telling us not just who he is, but also what he is. We have six verses before us today. And as we approach them, we're going to divide them up into two groups of three verses. They split up evenly as John the Baptist reveals Jesus to us. So in the first group of three verses, John proclaims reality number one of the person of Jesus. And in the second group, he proclaims reality number two about Jesus. And John the Baptist doesn't want to just say these things and have us take his word for it. He to use a modern expression, has saved his receipts. So John the Baptist proclaims a reality about Jesus and he shares a testimony and he shows how this fulfills a promise of God. So if you're analytical and you wanna know how does the Bible back this up, those are the three ingredients here. We've got revelation, we've got testimony, we've got fulfillment. And again, these two realities matter. They matter because they don't only define Jesus' life, They define our life too. Here's reality number one. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Look down with me at verses 29 through 31. The next day, so the day after the events we looked at last week, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. Don't you just love that, by the way? That Jesus didn't wait for John the Baptist to come to him but Jesus came towards John the Baptist. So he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
This is he of whom I said to the interrogators. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So let's start here with the, with the testimony of John the Baptist, his testimony. Here in verse 31, this statement, I myself did not know him. Interesting statement, especially if you know the story of John the Baptist, because he would have known Jesus. They would have known each other. In Matthew chapter 1, we read about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, meeting. So they were likely acquaintances. They knew of each other. So what John is saying here in verse 31 is that for a while, a long while, he knew who Jesus was, but not what he was. And now he had come to know, to recognize Jesus for what he was. The New Living Translation and the NASB, some other translations, get at John's testimony a bit more clearly here in verse 31, saying, I did not recognize him as Messiah. In other words, it's possible to know who Jesus is, but not to recognize what he is. This is the journey of conversion, moving from the who to the what. When I first met Catherine, after about a month and a half, I knew she was my future wife. I recognized it. It took her about four more years to recognize it. <laughs> it's conversion. Sometimes a slow process. Even when the answer is right in front of your eyes. <laughs> So the Holy Spirit has moved John along from the who to the what. And this is his testimony now. He recognizes and proclaims reality. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And what a loaded description of Jesus, of biblical proportions here. We have become accustomed to this phrase. If we've spent any time in the church, even if you're just dropping into the church every five, 10 years, you will have heard Lamb of God. But on that day, and to those people, under prophetic unction of the Holy Spirit, John the Baptist somehow sums up a universe worth of revelation about what Jesus is in one succinct phrase, Lamb of God. He would have had in mind a lot of things as he said this, but let's just focus on two. First, Jesus as the Lamb who would be slaughtered. An entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant. A system of sacrifice, of innocent bulls and goats and lambs, and the spilling of their innocent blood. That entire sacrificial system, all of it, all pointing ahead to the one great innocent lamb, Jesus, who would be slain and whose blood would be spilled once for all, that entire system pointing to and fulfilled by Christ. Think with me of the story in Genesis 22 of Abraham reaching up his hand to slaughter his own son, Isaac. And an angel of the Lord says, no! And what does God do? He provides a substitute, pointing ahead to the cross, when God would provide his ultimate substitute, his own son, 
whose life would not be spared. Think of the Levitical law. I know all of us are experts on this this morning. Uh, Leviticus 14.25, among many places, calls for the killing of a lamb for the guilt offering, the killing of a lamb. Picking up on this theme then, hear the prophet Isaiah pointing ahead to the Messiah. Isaiah 53, verse 7, we hear this often around Good Friday. He, the Messiah, was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So we look at the cross, and on the cross we see Jesus, the perfect man who lived a perfect life, led to the slaughter as the perfect, ultimate, once-for-all lamb of God for sinners like you and me. And John the disciple, who wrote this gospel, would later write about that great sacrifice of the great lamb, in 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus is the lamb of God who would be slaughtered. Also, as John makes this great Proclamation of Jesus, he has in mind that Jesus is the lamb who would conquer. He would conquer. This image of a lamb for God's people then was not just a meek and mild image of of sacrifice, of a Passover sacrifice. It was that, but it was also an image of conquering victory. They had an image in those days of a great horned lamb. You may have seen it on some church banners and many liturgical churches, the frontal of the communion table will have a great horned lamb. That's an image from the earliest days of, of God's people of, of victory. So as the lamb of God, Jesus would be and is today this conquering lamb for his people. Hear what the author of Hebrews would write in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, since we, we, Share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. There's his sacrifice as lamb, his being slain as lamb, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So see how in the fullness of the revelation of Scripture, Jesus' death as the lamb is also his victory as the lamb. It is his act of delivering. It's his act of, quoting the writer of Hebrews, destroying the devil. Sometimes we sing, come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lord upon the tree, in the stead, in the place of ruined sinners, hangs the lamb. Where? In victory. Jesus hung, Jesus was slain, Jesus was slaughtered as the lamb in victory. He was slain as a lamb in order that he might reign as the lamb. Jesus is both victim and victor. Jesus is both sacrifice and priest. Jesus is both lamb to be slaughtered and lamb to conquer. 
This is why John, again, John the disciple, would tell us of the song of worship that all of heaven sings and that for all of us who are in Christ, one day we will sing. Here's what we're going to sing one day. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we'll sing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So John the Baptist shares his testimony. He has moved from the who to the what. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is in himself the great and final and full and perfect and forever fulfillment of the promise of God to provide a lamb. A few months ago, I took communion to a dear woman who had loved Jesus all her life and on that day was at the end of her life. And her family had asked me to come and visit and bring communion to her. She was barely alive when I got there, barely able to sit up or anything. And she passed away a few days after I was there, and her daughter wrote me. And she said that in the last days of her mom's life, and I had seen this, her mom was totally weak, totally gone, unable to move a muscle. But just before she died, she sat up straight in her bed, eyes wide open, smile on her face, arms outstretched, and then she died. That woman saw the lamb, and she saw the same lamb walking towards her that John the Baptist had seen walking towards him. This is a great invitation this morning to put our trust in this great lamb who takes away our sins and who conquers death. Put your trust in this lamb of God. That's reality number one. Jesus is the lamb of God. Now number two, Jesus is the son of God. Let's pick up at verse 32. John bore witness saying, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So here we have all the ingredients again. John the Baptist proclaims the reality of Jesus as the Son of God. Start again briefly with John's testimony. He uses the same turn of phrase here in verse 33 we noticed earlier. I myself did not know him. Again, meaning at first I didn't know what was standing right in front of me. I didn't recognize him for what he is, but now I recognize him. He's the Son of God. This is the testimony of every person who comes to put their faith in Christ. We sang it last Sunday in the hymn Amazing Grace. You know this. I once was lost, 
but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John the Baptist didn't know that hymn. It hadn't been written yet, but he was singing that hymn. He's saying, he's saying I, 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 I knew who he was, but I didn't know what he was. Now I see the who and the what. So just a little pastoral note here. Be kind to yourself looking back over your own testimony. Those times of blindness, those periods, maybe years, maybe decades of blindness in your life. Be kind to yourself about it, looking back over it. Because we're all blind to Jesus until the Spirit opens our eyes. And be kind to those in your life, your family, your neighbors, coworkers, classmates, who are blind to, to Jesus, to what Jesus is. Pray specifically for them. Love them specifically. Wait specifically in this way that the Spirit would open their eyes, move them from the who to the what. John had come to know what Jesus is, the Son of God, and he knows this, again, because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And for John the Baptist... The eyewitness proof for him that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, that Jesus is the Son of God, and this can be our proof too. What evidence is there that this man, Jesus, is the Son of God? The evidence came at his baptism. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give us the account of his baptism, and the key moment in his baptism that proves that Jesus isn't like any other man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just a mystic with some nice ideas for world peace. The key moment that proves that Jesus is the Son of God was during his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended upon him and then, key word here, remained on him. Here's why that's key. It's because all throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would descend on a particular person for a particular purpose and then would depart. But not so with Jesus, not so with the Messiah. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove and doesn't leave. So to use a theological phrase here, this is a really, really big deal. <laughs> really big deal. Because the promise of God, again, this is a big deal because it proves and fulfills the promise of God. Isaiah 11, verses 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You might hear this most Advent seasons. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now catch this. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Here's Isaiah 42, 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. Upon him. So the prophets keep pointing, God's people keep waiting, and the centuries keep passing until one day Jesus walks into the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. He goes down, he comes up, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us that the spirit descends upon Jesus remains upon Jesus, and God the Father declares about Jesus, this is my beloved Son, with whom 
I am well pleased. So that means since the Spirit remains upon Jesus, Jesus has the power alone still to this day to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Here's what this means, being baptized in the Holy Spirit through Christ. It means that Jesus alone is the point of access into all the fullness of God, all the fullness of God, life in the Spirit, being immersed in the power and the presence of God the Holy Spirit can only be entered into by way of Christ. So we can make this outrageous claim as Christians and as a church of all things being held together by Jesus because it's outrageously true. That's why. Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus is what he says he is. He's the son of God. Therefore, Jesus offers us fullness of life in God. He baptizes us in the spirit of God. He puts us under <laughs> and then in one day brings us home to God. That's reality number two. Jesus is the son of God. But to quote Lon Solomon, the former pastor of McLean Bible Church, who used to have his congregation ask him towards the end of almost every sermon this famous question, so what? <laughs> so what? So what that Jesus is the Son of God? What's the point of application of all this theology, theology, Christology, Christology? So what? To answer that question, let me quote God the Father himself from the Mount of Transfiguration. The disciples have seen Jesus enveloped on that day in a cloud of glory. He's conversing with Elijah and Moses. And the voice of God thunders on the mountain, giving witness to Jesus, his son, saying, Luke 9, 35, this is my son, my chosen one. Now here's the so what, Lon Solomon. Here's the so what. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. He is who he says he is. He is what he says he is. He is what John the Baptist says he is. And because of who and because of what Jesus is, he has been given unique status above us and he has been given a unique claim upon us. So our life right now, this very moment, as we sit here this morning, and our life forever into eternity is inextricably linked to him. He is all these things, and he is all these things for you. He is the Lamb of God, both victim and victor. He is the Son of God, both now and forever. So hear me personally. There is no freedom from your sins, and there is no victory over death apart from Jesus the Lamb. Amen. 
and there is no life. There is no fullness of life now in this world or in the next apart from Jesus the Son. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. It's outrageously preposterous Praise God, it's true. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand and let's pray. And then I think we should sing. <laughs> let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the great gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you, God. You just join me for a moment in thanking him for the gift of this perfect spotless lamb for our salvation it's a perfect righteous son it's our life we thank you Lord we praise you we join our voices with angels and with archangels with all the company of heaven singing worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and blessing and honor and power and wisdom and might forever and ever be to our God forever and ever Praise you, Lord.